Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning, listeners, and welcome to Green Left Radio on 3CR for another week. Okay, um, in the studio you have Jacob and Zane. Um, before we um, get on with the program, I'd like to acknowledge um, that 3CR is being broadcast to you um, from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present, and that this always was, um, always will be, Aboriginal land. Indeed. All right, to give you a, um, a taste of what's coming up, um, we have at least three interviews booked. Um, at 7.10, we're going to be talking to Mahmoud from the Kurdish Democratic Association um, about um, about the situation that's currently unfolding in Afrin. Um, Afrin is um, on the border of Turkey and is part of um, northern Syria or Kurdistan um, and is... A, a slab uh, area in the, in the northern Syria where you know the Kurds are uh, having their kind of you know rev- uh, we're building kind of alternative society. So the situation is quite dire at the moment. Um, so we're hoping to hear a bit more about what's happening there. And at seven forty five a.m., we're going to be talking to Lucho from Lasnet. Um, Lucho is currently in Sydney at the moment because he's currently touring Pache Guzman, um, who is a PSUV um, Socialist Party of Venezuela uh, activist, um, who's doing a bit of a tour on speaking about you know what's happening in Venezuela, and and what's notable about her is she comes from a radical socialist left current within the PSUV in Venezuela, and at eight ten a.m. Um, I think Zane has a bit more details about that interview. Uh, yeah, we've got uh, Rebecca Langley, who's going to be speaking to us about a <clears throat> a speaking tour for a couple of West Papua activists that's coming up in May. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Okay. And um, so I guess the first news story I kind of want to talk about, and this is something that's um, about what's happening around around the Palestinian, um, Palestinian teenager Ahid Tamimi. Um, you know, listeners probably heard that she has been um, she was arrested in December after a video um, show um, after a video showing her slapping an Israeli soldier went viral. Um, and her, he, her and her family are part of you know a, a, a family that is has spent you know a better part of the decade um, resisting apartheid in um, Israel and against the occupation. Um, so what's what has um, transpired is that. Um, she has uh, her and her mother have been sentenced to eight months in prison, and a US um, and a thousand five hundred dollar um, and US dollars fine, as their legal team accepted a plea bargain with military persecution on Wednesday. Um, 
Ahid and her mother were sentenced in separate trials at the Ofra military camp near Ramallah, with no media or social organisations allowed. Um, what's kind of notable is um, listeners probably have heard there's been a you know a, a very big sort of out political campaign of solidarity with um, Ahid Tamiri. I mean, she Ahid Tamiri for her you know heroic her heroism has been kind of described as you know the shrew Wonder Woman, not the Wonder Woman that's played by a Zionist. Um, and what's interesting is Tamiri's defense team had demanded a public trial, but the military court rejected the appeal. Um, the plea that has been accepted reduced the 17-year-old's Palestinian teenage charges to four counts of assault, leaving out other charges such as stone throwing. And at the end of the, se- um, the first session of the hearing, Ahid said there is no justice under occupation. And, um, and of course, um, the original um, indictment included charges going back to 2016, such as assaulting and threatening a soldier, disrupting a soldier, and exciting and throwing objects at a person or property. Um, but what's interesting is um, I think it's clear that because of the pressure of this campaign that you know the military courts were fo- um, forced themselves to actually put forward a plea like this um, because um, an anonymous um, source told the Israeli newspaper Haritz that the military court felt the need to end the legal case that was bringing a lot of negative attention from the media and social organisations damaging the army's reputation. In fact, what was interesting is you even had um, celebrities like um, Sarah Silverman actually calling for Ahid um, to me to be free. Um, so I think it's that part of that kind of pressure and solidarity that is, I mean, it's not good that she's got an eight month sentence, but it could have been a whole lot worse. Mm. Uh, so that, um, so that's kind of the current update on what's happening with Ahid Tamimi. Mm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a scandal that she's even in there. Um, but yeah, that's that's the nature of the Zionists' occupation. Mm. Yeah, and um, I think, yeah, and um, it's it, it's it's um, and yeah, and her, as I said, her and her family. I mean, her father's quite notable for being, you know, for being quite a a, a staunch um, protester of um, the Israeli Zion, um, occupation um, of Palestine, and this is, you know, it's part. It's these kind of struggles that you know is what lends itself to the. Um, to supporting the Palestinian struggle. In fact, <laughs> I read an article recently and that, you know, the Palestinians are preparing to mobilise for a, uh, for another mass mobilisation, which has been sort of mi- sort of mistitled in the media as that they have some kind of secret weapon up their sleeves, yeah, which that. is more that they... But what's happening is they're, they're the coming together. The Palestinian doomsday weapon. Yeah, themselves <laughs> resisting. <laughs> hmm. Mass action. Doomsday weapon. Yeah. Hmm. Good. Okay. What um, else is new? Uh, I think we're getting two minutes to our first interview, so we might play a quick announcement and then get on to the first interview of the program. And on the phone, we have uh, Mahmoud Karaman uh, from the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre of Victoria to talk about the um, the attacks uh, and the sort of ground invasion that's kind of happening in uh, in Afrin. Uh, one of the, the Kurdish areas in, in uh, northwestern Syria. Welcome, Mahmoud. 
Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Yeah. So, um, Mahmoud, can um, maybe to start, well, can you tell us, um, you know, tell uh, our listeners about what's the current situation um, that's happening on Afrin right now, especially um, for the Kurds. Situation unfortunately is, is terrible. It's, it's very blink. After two months, uh, air attack and ground assault by Turkish army uh, and its allies, so-called Free Syrian Army. But we know they are ex-jihadist members, probably Al Qaeda, Al Nusra, Daesh, and many villages in Afrin has been destroyed. Some major towns been destroyed, and also Afrin city. Uh, was evacuated uh, to prevent further death of civilians. And so far, around 500 civilians have been killed and many more been wounded. Mm. Yeah, so um, what what has kind of been, um, you know, what has kind of been the response from the international community on, you know, what's happening um, in Afrin? Because... Okay. Yeah, yeah. International com- uh, community, not to people themselves, but international institution is a shame. Yes. And they're just playing three monkeys. They're not seeing. I mean, uh, European Union, United Nations, or NATO anyway, NATO part of the probably war. And they, 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 just, they just ignore. I think their economic interest, their military interest with Turkey comes first. I, I don't think so. They care about mm. death of civilian or destruction of infrastructures, house or ta- ha- houses or residential areas. They don't care much. Yeah, because you know what seems, what is uh, appears um, completely disgraceful is um, the fact that you know um, what you hap- you know, you, you know, with the with what happened in northern Syria with the Kurds is that you know the United States were willing to give um, the Kurds aid um, when it came to fighting against um, ISIS, um, but yeah. then what happens when um, Turkey? Um, goes and invades them, um, they just completely abandon them and leave them... Exactly, exactly. United, uh, United States and Russia and both same. In fact, we know that as a curse. We know they don't want real democracy to explore in Middle East. They need the war. They use Kurds and Turks against each, each other, and unfortunately, the Turkish state won't see this. Turkish state just aim to destruct... Kurds or whatever belong to Kurds, uh, not even in Kurdistan, even in around the world. So national policy prevents Turkish state to see that, and even United States or Russia wouldn't care about the right of the Turkish people. Uh, but uh, this is the reality in the in the ground. But despite of this, we, we Kurds, we know that. I mean, uh, United States doesn't want really some alternative democratic um, uh, Communities or a system to to exist in Middle East, especially yeah in in Syria, they more uh, try to play division and bring people against each other to to kill each other. This is unacceptable. Otherwise, in northern Syria, Kurds with other minority groups, religious groups, they able to uh, establish which we call radical democracy, which we call third wave and grassroots democracy. And if they are really in favor of democracy, if really against radical jihadist Islamists, they should support this system. But we see they don't really. They're supporting the other side, or nationalists, or, or those who play religion against uh, people. Hmm. That thing? 
Um, Mahmoud, I'm just interested, uh, how far across the border into what is, um, I guess, the, I mean, it's all Kurdistan, really, but how far across the border into what is northern Syria have Turkish forces come as part of this latest wave of attacks? Look, African city itself, not far from the border, probably 50, 60 kilometers, even even closer. And uh, uh, one side of the other side of border is Kurdish area as well. Therefore, if you just cross border, it, it's a border, but it's Kurdistan anyway. Mm. The villages in, in Turkey side is Kurds, the other side is Kurds. And uh, Turkey, I believe now, at this 20, 30 kilometers there in, uh, in that area, area uh, in Afrin uh, cantons and they as you know they a uh, uh, couple of days ago they surrounded the city and they start to bomb city and even they bomb ho- the only uh, functioning hospital and therefore Kurdish troops YPG and YPJ they decided to withdraw from Afrin city to prevent further destruction and death of civilians and they evacuated civilians from Afrin but we believe there is still Many civilians in Afrin area, in towns surrounding Afrin and, and villages, which they, they stuck there. They couldn't go out, and we don't know what happened to them. And now Turkish army and this, the, the jihadist groups, they, they're controlling almost army, uh, sorry, Afrin uh, center. And probably you, you also seen from media, as long as they, uh, as soon as they enter in Afrin, first things, they destroyed the the statue of uh, a blacksmith uh, uh, cover, which we call revolutionary cover, it 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 it, it goes it has big uh, big importance or in in Kurdish history, hmm. and they destruct many other cultural sites, and they just put Turkish flags everywhere, and they just put uh, uh, free Syrian army's flag everywhere, and this is this is a very bad situation. I mean, they are in Athens. In city now, and they captured many uh, towns and villages. Um, but we believe YPG and YPG forces uh, now uh, they start um, some kind of guerrilla wars against them instead of having conventional wars. Mm. Okay. What I want to um, the last kind of question I'm going to ask is going a bit on time here. Is um, can you tell us about the week of action um, that the Kurdish community kind of is yeah, kind of organising in Melbourne? Some, sometimes ago, when situation gets worse and worse in uh, Afrin, and when uh, international community stay in, in this silence, or so international institutions play three monkeys in Europe, uh, some human rights activists and, and intellectuals and politicians they come together. They call 24th of March uh, Day of Global Action for Afrin to raise awareness about Afrin. And therefore, tomorrow, all over the world, or most of the parts of the world, and especially Europe and pr- probably Latin America, and from Japan to Australia, they will be uh, demonstra- demonstration and rallies. And in Melbourne also, tomorrow, there will be rally. Uh, we start two, 1 p.m. in front of State Library, and we will uh, march from there to uh, Federation Square. Uh, we would like all Australian friends who, who in favor of love and, and freedom and, and real democracy to come and uh, support us and be with us tomorrow. Hmm. So what's the details of this rally tomorrow? 
but it will start one o'clock. We start start, start uh, uh, trying to have some speakers as as well, and there will be some speeches in, uh, before rally starts, and then we'll march through Swan Street to uh, Federation Square, and then we'll finish our uh, rally over there. But uh, this won't be the last one. In last one week, we almost having demonstration rallies every day, and we'll still continue. Hopefully, one day our government, which is so silent, which is doesn't make any statement about death of civilians, one day can come out and say few few words at least. And we want to see whether Australian government is supporting the this dictator, the 21st century Hitler Erdogan, or they they are supporting peace and and life of civilians in uh, Africa and Kurdistan. And Mahmoud, my, my understanding is if these international protests can um, at least get Turkey to stop with the airstrikes, that's going to be a very important strategic step in, in helping to defend Afrin because that's one of the real uh, disparities at the moment. Is you definitely are. There was a ma- I mean, major problem in the airstrikes and they... they uh, like, uh, airstrikes kills many civilians, uh, destroy many infrastructures, including hospitals. And the air, because of <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate because of Russia, Russia control airspace in uh, Syria. They allow Turkey to do this. This is this crime not only committed by Turkey but by Russia as well. They both committing crime. I mean, unfortunately, Russia is it seems not much different than the uh, U.S. They they both almost same. Yeah, we wish our friends come and support us. This is not only Kurdish issue. This is human rights issue. This is democracy issue. We are defending democracy, human rights. We are defending grassroots democracy, which was exploring in Afrin in other parts of northern Syria. And this is very important. If we defend it, it will get stronger and exist. But if we just won't defend this new democratic system exploring in the Middle East, unfortunately... It will be destroyed. Hmm. All right. Well, um, yeah. Keep up the uh, keep up the organising. It's really um, it's inspiring to see the the resilience of uh, Kurdish campaigners, uh, y- yourself included. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's a really good turnout tomorrow. Thanks heaps Thank for you. speaking with us this Thanks. morning. Thanks for having the opportunity me to speak to you. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Yeah, thank you, Mahmoud. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, Mahmoud uh, Karaman there from the Kurdish Democratic Community Centre. And as you heard, the rally uh, in support of, of Afrin is part of an international day of action that will be at 1 o'clock tomorrow, Saturday, at the State Library. Okay, so um, just the latest um, in terms of news um, that's happening internationally. I mean, I think there's been a lot of big things that have happening. Uh, well, actually, maybe the first thing just to talk about, I mean, the kind of breaking news... Um, that has that happened recently is this whole kind of launch of the ACTU Change the Rules campaign. Um, and unfortunately, we didn't really have room to fit another interview in the program because we would have liked to hear directly from ACTU um, on this whole Change the Rules campaign. I mean, kind of, I listened to Sally McManus's hour-long media um, press. Um, uh, National Press, um, on that, which is up on ABC, and the kind of gist of it is, you know, we're um, basically um, campaigning against, you know, casualisation, 
of work, um, basically this whole question of increasing the power of workers um, because the rules are essentially broken, um, especially around industrial relations. Um, and, you know, there's a few kind of basic kind of demands. I mean, one of them is the right of entry um, because at this point a lot of unions don't actually even have the right of entry to be able to enter in the workplace and just talk to the workers about, you know, why you should join the union etc. Um, employers do all these kind of stringent kind of measures to prevent that. Um, there's also this whole question of the right to strike um, because our industrial laws basically make it so you can't really strike. I mean, you, it, to have a legal strike, it has to be... You During know, an enterprise bargain agreement yep. when the other you know, agreement has lapsed and blah, blah, blah. You've got to tick 50 boxes and give your employer 72 hours yeah. warning before you're allowed to go on strike. It's and actually, now that you've mentioned enterprise bargaining agreements, that was one of the most in, one of the more interesting highlights from Sally McManus's speech is calling on um, to go away, to actually go away from enterprise bargaining agreements to begin with and go to industrial level agreements, mm. um, which basically would mean that instead of it being on an individual business by business with workers all having their own individual um, agreements related to um, the organisation they work from. What Sally McManus wants is industrial level uh, agreements. So basically the implications of that is you wouldn't have this whole situation that's on universities right now where you can have Murdoch University, for example, although that um, has um, they have adopted a new enterprise bargaining agreement recently where you know you had but in history um, previously you had a university like Murdoch University completely abolish its enterprise bargaining agreement mm. whereas what McManus is saying is that all universities would campaign for some kind of agreement at once yeah at once that would apply to all university mm. stuff across all the country all hospitality workers all construction workers across the country, industry by industry. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's actually, I mean, it's there's lots of problems with enterprise bargaining agreements as they are, and mm. I think what Sally McManus um, calling for industrial... Um, industrial-based um, agreements is actually, you know, I would think it's quite radical. Yeah, I think it's a very significant break because this is the first time since Labor brought in the accord the restrictions on the right to strike and enterprise bargain agreements are really two sides of the same coin. They're, they're intimately tied up in each mm. other. So when Sally McManus says enterprise bargain agreements are stopping wage growth, she's effectively saying, you know, this whole system which restricts strike action and industrial mm. action is, is an issue. Yep. So it's, yeah, very yeah. significant development. Yeah. So I think um, that's, um, I think in the future, um, as this campaign goes on, I think Green Left Radio will get to play a role of trying to cover this campaign from many different angles. We'll include regular interviews with rank and file workers, um, at least some union um, interviews with um, union secretaries on, you know, what their kind of perspective is on the Change Rules campaign, what kind um, um, you know, how can we make it better? And I mean, one kind of example, um, you know, other thing that Sally McManus said that is quite significant was actually actually pointed to the serious problems of these so-called neutral organisations, the process, uh, such as the Fair Work Commission, and how they're actually not necessarily um, designed um, um, to take into account the workers' best interests. Yeah, not at all. I mean, we saw the Fair Work Commission just recently in Sydney um, t- 
telling the, the rail workers that they're not allowed to go on strike. That's mm. not neutral at all. Yeah, and um, what's um, fascinating is um, the amount of Australian businesses and uh, associations and so on um, basically slamming Sally McManus's speech. I mean, there was a very funny quote um I don't know who the person is and I don't really care to know who he is, but some business stooge um, basically said that, oh, yes, Sally McManus is bringing back very archaic kind of language, class warfare, he said. Um, we actually got past that in the 80s, apparently. I mean, that's probably true. We've, we've a, had a classless society in yeah, Australia yeah. since the 80s. Well, that's probably true in a sense, In an, basically in one sense, if he's referring to the 80s, yes, well, that's when we kind of successfully killed this whole question of class through the, the through the signing of accord. That doesn't mean that class existed. We just basically obscured it. Because, mm. um, you know, one of the... Um, I mean, it would be actually good if we could have a bit of um, um, coverage on the accord because I think a lot of listeners don't completely have their heads around what the implications of the accord was. But I think... Yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of a left lingo, like people who've been involved in left-wing or socialist or union mm. politics for a while mm. would have had these conversations about this thing called yeah. the Accord. But, yeah, we'll definitely have to, you know, I, um, because I think when we cover the Change Rules campaign in the future, we'll definitely want to contrast it with the historical kind of, um, you know, hi- historical kind of context of what the Accord was. And I think the basic summary for maybe any listeners um, for who might not know who the, what the Accord was, the Accord was basically... It was basically a kind of agreement that basically it was sort of like the attempt was basically to sort of mediate the interests of the workers and the bosses and essentially all the implications that came with it was it basically weakened workers and Mm. it strengthened bosses and employers. But it was all um, because it was implemented by Labor. It was all done this basis of, you know, you've all heard this story, you know, bosses, we have to... You know, the thing we need to do, we need to do to fix capitalism is to mediate the interests of the bosses and the workers. Because, you know, workers and bosses all have valid interests. We actually have to balance them out. It's almost like this kind of centrist kind of approach of mm. both sides. When actually, you know, as we're airing of free you know, we completely stand unequivocally with the workers yeah. and their interests and we're all for increasing workers' I, power. I guess the... So the accord was brought in by the Hawke Labor government in the uh, in the early eighties, early to mid eighties, and the 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 context is that in the nineteen seventies we had peak union density, peak union membership in Australia, and also peak strike action, peak number of um, strike days per year in Australia, happening across all different industries. Um, possibly the pinnacle of which was the the green bands movement, which was really groundbreaking and uh, fused, I guess, new social movements and environmentalism with trade unionism, and it scared the crap out of the ruling class. And so then in the 80s, a lot of the trade unions then as now were led by Labour Party people, and the Labour Party, I guess the the right wing of the Labour Party, led by Bob Hawke, who himself was a former ACTU president, uh, they used their control of the Labour Party and therefore of union leaderships to implement this accord. And one of the key things about the accord was 
okay, we the, the kind of the packs that you're talking about between business and labor was we'll have good wages, we'll have more money put into social programs, but not really because they were like cutting investment in public housing and various other things. But in theory, the idea was we'll have we'll kind of lock in good wage rises and and sort of an expansion of the welfare state as a trade-off for not going on strike anymore mm. and for and for creating these rules which will forevermore restrict workers from going on strike. Mm. Of course, the problem with that is the only reason that workers had the bargaining power to implement this thing, which in theory would continuously improve the lot of workers, mm. is precisely because there'd just been this long period of high union density and workers going on strike mm. You can't just trade that all off in this one-off thing and think that it's going to last forever. Mm. Workers only ever have that power if they are mobilising, if they do have that strong union density. Mm. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, I mean, it's not complete, it might not be completely connected, but kind of example is actually in my workplace, um, you know, follows everything by the book in terms of the Fair Work Commission. And so I do get like, you know, a kind of pay increase kind of every financial year. And I think that was kind of the logic that, you know, the wages would be fair because you'll legally get a pay rise. But then, you know, the reality is because it's given more power to the bosses, the bosses can actually get away with not increasing people's wages. And what it actually ignores is the historical role of, you know, though the the serious wage increases were actually won by workers fighting for it. Yes, and that's the other thing that happened in the 1970s. You had peak union density, peak strike action, and also the peak share of Australian national wealth going into wages instead of into capital. It doesn't mean that capital wasn't making profits mm. in the 70s, but it means that a larger, the largest historical proportion ever of national wealth that was going into the pockets of the workers was in the 70s when you had the most people in unions and the most strike days happening. Mm. Yeah. So maybe to move on, um, maybe we'll play announcement and I'll move on to another news story from um, the international section. For real. But yeah, this is uh, pretty exciting from the ACTU. And um... All right. Okay. So this other news story I want to talk about is, um, you know, listeners probably have heard about it, about this... Um, Apparently, Austin, this bomber in Austin, Texas, who killed two people and injured five, who died on March 21st after blowing himself up in a vehicle as law enforcement closed in. Um, But I think what everyone has probably noticed about this story is this bomber um, wasn't a terrorist um, because... Here's the facts. He was he was white, <laughs> um, and of what's course. and what's interesting is the whole media coverage is you know is going on about how you know he was actually a depressed figure. You know he was lonely, neglected. He was also apparently a bit of a nerd, whatever that kind of means. Basically, trying to create this imp- image of creating empathy um, for this bomber. Um, the suicide bomber, despite the fact if he was brown, black, um, Latino, or any other race, he would have been labelled a terrorist, and the media would have gone full on and um, in labelling him a terrorist. And I think it just shows the outright kind of hypocrisy. And um, you know, and what's actually 
what's actually quite clear is um, as more information um, has come out about this particular individual, is apparently he there is evidence to suggest that his actions were actually politically motivated um, and that he was part of, he had very right-wing conservative views. Um, but of course, that's not mentioned in the media at all. And um, I mean, because the classic hallmark of a terrorist is someone who commits acts like this, but is politically motivated. And it's quite clear there was a political motivation behind the actions of this individual, um, but because of the hypocrisy of our kind of mainstream of the mainstream media in the United States, uh, there's all this kind of so-called nuance being applied, um, where he's you know he's not, he's seen as like a damaged individual, and that actually somehow explains his kind of actions. And I mean, I've read a Facebook status by um, by a friend of mine. Um, you know, he basically said, he basically, a bit of a counter to this, I mean, is that, you know, bu- this question of, I mean, when it's always a white person, they always try to make a big deal that, oh, well, he was bullied at school, he was lonely, blah, et cetera. But I think that's quite problematic when you look, consider the fact that, you know, the major- a lot of people of colour experience worse bullying and persecution, but, you know, we don't see people of colour performing mass shootings. Hmm. Um, whereas the majority of mass shooters um, that have been um, in the past sort of year or two have all been white. Oh, I think even following that trend further back, it's <coughs> overwhelmingly mass shooters tend to be white males mm. with a history of domestic violence. Mm. That's a that's a consistent pattern. Yeah. Well, and a consistent pattern is the fact that the United States is a country of white supremacy. Hmm. Um, where, you know, certain, uh, a group of people are, you know, given this sort of privilege hmm. and power in, in Yeah, in if society. I don't get my way, I'm going to go and blow some stuff up and shoot some people. That's just kind of, you know, because I'm white and I can. That's that kind of underlying logic that, that Americans learn from a from popular culture and from the actions of the United States in the world. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So the next um, kind of story I want to talk about is um, what's um, basically listeners probably heard about. um, There's been some protests um, that have been happening in the past week um, outside the Sydney studio um, where Channel 7 broadcasts its breakfast show Sunrise um, on March the 16th, um, which was there to basically express their uh, um, people to express their outrage made by the two panellists, neither of whom are Indigenous. Um, on the show and that they and many on social media objected when one who had no experience in child welfare or Indigenous affairs argued the stolen generations were justified because Indigenous children were being abused by their parents and that, you know, what they were basically saying was the second stolen generation was needed. Mm. And Disgusting. And, yeah, the disgusting argument was, you know, but uh, it's always this classic um, um, story and it's always put forward by these kind of white people in, in power, um, that they basically, I mean, Andrew Bolt likes to make this argument completely disingenuous and it's completely racist, um, that, you know, you know, the reason why, um, you know, they basically say that, you know, children, uh, Aboriginal children don't get removed enough from, from custody and there are too many Aboriginal children in, in abused situations and there's because of this whole context of, this, of the stolen generations, people are too afraid to, um, you know, to, to, for um, the Department of 
children's services to actually take action on removing children from these abuse rights, despite the fact, actually, that um, that unjustifiably Aboriginal children are being removed from um, from their parents, and it's and it's completely racist and ingenious. So, yep, there's been protesters outside the Sunrise office. Um, well, there was one. I don't think there were being multiple to my record. But what was funny was. When, when they protested outside Sunrise's office, because um, when you watch Sunrise, they actually show live footage of what's happening outside at Martin Place. Mm. Uh, but they actually, they actually, um, yeah, during the airing, they changed. They played the some stock footage. They played some stock like, footage to show yeah. it looked empty, mm. uh, despite the fact there were hundreds of protesters outside. You know, calling them out for their their crap um and what's interesting is i also heard a story though i'm not completely sure if this is historically accurate but you know probably is um because it's just the reality of of um australia that you know um samantha Armitage. i mean she's been complaining she's been complaining on twitter about how unreasonable and you know how unfairly treated she's been who she's one of the um the, the host of the sunrise program um you know it's actually um heard that she actually comes from um, potentially comes from a family that has a, a strong history of Aboriginal dispossession and is a is part of the many you know white families who have actually benefited from Aboriginal genocide and colonisation. Hmm. So, I bet she didn't mention that when they were doing their story. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it all goes hand in hand with this kind of trend of you know because on sunrise it was an all white panel of so-called white experts you know basically speaking on behalf of aboriginal people and saying you know um to and spreading basically racist rhetoric hmm. yeah so um the next kind of story i want to talk about is um just a bit of a short story on that conflict has erupted on melbourne's waterfront after cube um, ports applied to terminate an enterprise agreement covering its um covering its bulk and general operation and members of uh, the Maritime Union of Australia um, on March the 17th 18th um, retaliated with a snap 48 hour strike and declared bans on shifts greater than seven hours and on overtime. If Cube's um, application to terminate the Melbourne agreement is successful, it would be the first time an agreement has been terminated on the nation's wharf. And MUA Assistant National Secretary Warren Smith said the dispute centred on the company's refusal to reinstate a seven-to-one roster where workers have seven weeks on and one week off, and that was removed during a downturn in business conditions. And, of course, um, Warren Smith says said um, that um, the company removed the roster in early 2015, saying it would revert when trading conditions improved. Um, but three years later, volumes have increased, but the rosters have not has not been reinstated. Mm. And, of course, he said that this this cold dispute is not about um, simply about work wages increases, but work in conditions. The company is rounding rampant over the workforce with the creation of work patterns that directly result in unsafe levels of fatigue. Um, and of course, the company has identified fatigue as a major priority when it comes to occupational health and safety. Yet, workers at Cube in Melbourne are working several consecutive twelve-hour shifts, and this is the core of the problem. And so, basically, kind of the fight is, you know, basically around working conditions, and um, and you know, um, 
and and it all links quite well with the the change the rules campaign and he you know basically said that you know we need to change the rules so that working people like the MUA members at Cube can win fair pay and good secure jobs and the MUA agrees with the ACTU in saying that it's time to change rules smith said wage growth is stagnant stagnant um while CEO pay pockets and corporate profits are at record levels. And, of course, all trade unionists um, know that the only way working people get pay rises is when they have the power to negotiate them. Right now, corporations like Cube have too much power and working people have too little. And, of course, he said, concluding here, he said that the union has had not decided on further strikes but warned this, this, this route um, that um, would escalate um, dispute um, would escalate if the company did not shift ground. If the company keeps refusing to bargain and goes down the half of terminating, that's when it will blow up. He said. Hmm. Well, yeah. There's been other workplace um, EBAs terminated, but uh, <laughs> not in not in a place that's got as militant a uh, a workforce as the uh, waterfront. So. Yes, that will be interesting. If Cube are dumb enough to terminate that agreement, I think there will be a a breakout of industrial action in a big way. All right, um, just going to play an announcement, and then we'll get Luce Riquelme uh, on the phone to talk about the upcoming tour of Pacha Guzman. Um, you are listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR, and on the phone we have got uh, Lucho Riquelme, who is um, part of um, LASNET, the Latin America Solidarity Network, and they're organizing a speaking tour of Pacha Guzman uh, from Venezuela. That's coming up soon. Welcome, Lucho. Hey, good morning. Um, so what can you tell us about um, um, this tour of Pacha Guzman and kind of what is the kind of political context and what, are, what is LASNET kind of hoping to get out of this tour? Uh, well, P- Pacha Guzman is uh, a spokesperson from the um, Bolivarian Zamora Revolutionary Current, and also she's a militant of the Peasant National Front, Executive Zamora, which is uh, is one of the largest organizations uh, for peasants in, and also for work of workers and uh, poor people in, in Venezuela, which is. Uh, uh, are supporting the Bolivarian process and they're supporting uh, the changes uh, that Chavez did. That they are they are promoting, they are defending that changes, and uh, they will stand up to defending all that uh, uh, benefit that that they achieved with the revolution in the last all these last nearly twenty years. So, uh, what, what we uh, our our intention is to show, you know, the position. Of uh, of, a, of a grassroots movement in relation to to the Bolivarian process and how they are supporting this and how they are developing uh, the organization in, in, inside or within within the Bolivarian process. Hmm. And so, can you tell me um, a bit more about um, um, Pache and kind of what is her kind of political background? Oh, as I said before, she's a militant of this. Uh, the Ezequiel Zamora Peasant National Front, and, and uh, she's a bit militant of this uh, movement for, for a while, and that's what she's uh, very involved in, in building, for example, the the Comuna or the 
the the, the movement from uh, from the barrios from from the shanty town. So that, that, that's the, the, the importance of of his her visit here uh, because we are intend we, we want to promote that. You know, we want to people know a position from from uh, from the street from from the people uh, in relation to the Bolivarian Revolution that that is happening. Uh, that's going that's going on in in, in Venezuela. And um, how has the tour been going? Like, what um, cities? Um, you know, because I'm aware that she's um, spoken with a number of cities already. But um, how has that tour gone generally? It has been very, very great. A lot of, a lot of support around around the different cities around Australia. Actually, because we've been in Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Canberra now in, in Sydney, and and next week we're going to Melbourne. So, for her, has been a very, very great experience. So. To know about people in, in in Australia and also to know how the solidarity work with Latin America and with Venezuela is is, is happening here in Australia. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Lucho, so Pache is from the Ezekiel Zamora Peasant National Front. Who was Ezekiel Zamora? Who was this historical figure? Uh, he was uh, a leader from the independent process who defending the the, the peasant the peasants and defending the. Uh, the people, the people defending the people against the oligarchy on on those years of the process. Yeah, cool. <laughs> and you spoke about how um, the uh, Ezekiel Zamora Peasant National Front have been defending and extending the gains of the revolution uh, in Venezuela. What what have been some of those gains uh, for for peasants and and farmers in particular? Well, because they, they they can have the land, they can have the land to produce. They have land. They can have the land for the, for for them, hmm. because the, the land is for the people who who live in the land. So there's not uh, multinational. There's no uh, uh, big companies uh, exploiting the land. They are living in the land. They are producing the land. They are trying to organize uh, how to to take the benefits from. The, and resources from 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 the land and producing food, etc. So that that's the main gain of this uh, process. Twenty twenty years ago, they worked for for the owners of the land, and you know how happened when the the, the owner of the land exploded the people, and and now they work for them. They work for for the people. They work for the community. They work for 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 the society. Hmm. That's the main gain of the of this. Uh, this organization and the people who are belong to this organization. And what what is it like for people in Pacha's situation who are um, organizing amongst uh, peasants, uh, campesinos? Uh, is this a dangerous thing in Venezuela? No, 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 no. no. Well, well, uh, it's been it's been very difficult when when they started because at the beginning they are. They taking the land and they start in the start the, the, the land who don't the the people who are on the land they they, they use it, don't use the land for produce mm. just they, they leave it without any, anything now they are taking the land they are producing the land at the beginning in the process uh, have, have been a lot of a lot of the leaders have been killed by the oligarchy by the owner of, of the land and about three hundred people in the beginning mm. in the in the first two years about three hundred people was killed but uh, then. And then they are, the, the, the state take the role to deal with the owners on the on the oligarchy of the land to to give the to 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 or well to defending the people who taking this land 
Das ist Deutschland, ja, das ist Game of the, of the Revolution. Ja, yeah, okay. Mhm. Mm I don't know if you understand. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that makes sense, because I, I have heard of peasant organizers in Venezuela being, um, you know, like, assassinated. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting what you're saying, that as time has gone on, that's, yeah. that trend has lessened. But, well, that, 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 that all the history of the oldest, though she's talking and he's playing it to people in Australia, that's why it's very important to to to, to see here and to listen here about mm. about what, what she's doing or what she what she can say us what we can, she can share with us about the revolution. Yeah, can you um tell us about um give us the details for the sessions she'll be um the forums she'll be speaking at in Melbourne? Uh -huh. Okay, she she has to. Uh, two meetings, or public or open meetings in, in Melbourne. The first one is on the 27th, which is for Latins or Spanish people, uh, Spanish-speaking people in, in Odea. The idea is to share with the community. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of people from Latin America now in the last, in the past two years have been arriving a lot of Latinos in, in, in Melbourne, so that's why I want to do a meeting with them. And the other meeting open for everyone, for the community, for all the for the moments of for, for people organizations in in Melbourne is on the 29th, Thursday the 29th, which it will be a, a night and cultural night and also a discussion night about Venezuela. This meeting will be in the Edinburgh Gardens in in, in the community hall over there. The Edinburgh Gardens is in, uh, is in Fitzroy North, around uh, Brunswick Street. So we we call it for people to come in and listen about from the first hands. Uh, what happened in, in Venezuela. Yeah, cool. Um, are you able to actually introduce the um, that meeting on the 27th in Spanish for us? Yeah. Because <laughs> I no. think there is some Spanish so, listeners of 3CR, so if, if they're tuned in right now, that would be you good. Want, you want me to say in Spanish? Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. Okay, yeah. Uh, bien. Bueno, invitamos a toda la gente de la comunidad latinoamericana y en Melbourne a asistir a un encuentro con Pacho Guzmán, que representa el Frente Nacional Campesino de Zamora. Ella va a estar compartiendo con toda la gente. Va a ser este martes 27, ahí en el Trice Hall, en el Trice Hall que queda ahí en, en Carlton South, a las 7 de la tarde. Muchas gracias, ojalá venga mucha gente a este encuentro con Pacha. ¿Está bien? ¿Está bien? Sí, cool. Gracias. Right. Right. No, gracias. Yeah, no um, ok, well, I guess we, an, anything else? Oh, what, well, has Pacha given any update about the, uh, constituent assembly process that's been happening in Venezuela? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, he, talk, he can talk about that, also about the, the coming election, which is on the 20th of May, so, okay. so we'll, we'll have a big, a big picture of what happened in Venezuela. And the 20th of May, is that the presidential election or the... <laughs> Uh, presidential, presidential elections. Yeah, okay. Uh, it's not sure if they are combined with the National Assembly elections. Uh, so, she can explain that also. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. That's, um, yeah, that's a big uh, thing. Yeah, big thing. And also about the, the media, you know, the, the media, how the media have been lying about the Oh, well, but that's all the, all the she's spoken about. Yeah, nice. Yeah. All right. Well, um, yes, we will move on. We're going to do the activist calendar, but thank you very much for speaking with us this morning, Lucho. Thanks, thanks to you to let us uh, to, to explain about this too. So thank you very much. Cheers. All right. We'll uh, talk to you again soon.
Okay, yeah, great. See ya. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Cheers. Uh, yes, uh, Lucho Ricalme there, talking about the Pacha Guzman tour that's um, coming up. So, yeah, and as you heard, there's a meeting for the, the Latino Latina community uh, in Melbourne on the 27th of March at uh, Trades Hall. And then on Thursday, the 29th of March, with an interpreter, that's happening at 7 p.m. at uh, Edinburgh Gardens Community Hall. So, yeah, check it out. All right, you are in CCR, and... What do we got? Uh, is a brief news story before we get to the activist calendar? I'm trying to find a quick news story. To get. Actually, all the news stories I have are kind of... Actually, I might just share one quick news story. Um, just a bit of an update on... We spoke about, you know, Peter Dutton's kind of proposal um, to give South African white farmers, um, you know basically access um and they're allowed to have refugee status in australia or fast-tracked readers and um peter dutton's kind of response has been i mean this just shows how much of an inhumane terrible person he is but basically he said that oh yes the left has been raving about this but you know they don't realize that they're dead to me <laughs> So basically, any kind of criticism he gets, he just brushes off and says, "Well, they're dead to me." Mm. Like that is how inhumane he basically is. He like mm. just doesn't give. A, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, he's a sociopath. Yeah. Oh, once a cop, always a cop. Mm. Yes. Well, I think uh, he's um, the Labor candidate that was pre-selected to run against him in the seat of Dixon. Yep. Uh, I think she's breaking with convention and is actually speaking out against Labor refugee policy, which mm. is kind of rare. So, yeah, yeah hopefully she gets up and uh, that dude gets the arse at the next election. Well, yeah. I hope he does lose his seat in the next federal election. What a truly decrepit human. Like, mm. Yeah, he, he really... He really typifies the, the worst element of the Liberal Party, just just completely happy to destroy human lives for political gain. Uh, all right, so we have... All right, welcome back. You are on uh, 3CR. This is Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have Rebecca Langley. Uh, Rebecca is one of the main organisers of a West Papua speaking tour that's coming up in May. Welcome, Rebecca. Hello. So, um, yeah, Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about the political kind of the, the focus of this speaking tour that's uh, going to be happening in May? Yeah, uh, so um, as some of the listeners may know, the Australian government funds and trains uh, Indonesian police and military um, and... Yeah, that that funding and training directly um, impacts West Papuans because of the occupation uh, by the Indonesians uh, in in that um, land. So the uh, indigenous West Papuans are tortured, arrested, uh, killed um, by those. Same police that are that are being trained by, um, yeah, by the Australian government. So, 
uh, the speaking tour is a chance for uh, West Papuans to speak uh, about their experiences of police brutality um, yeah, to an Australian audience um, so that uh, people can then, with the aim of then putting pressure on uh, the Australian government to to, to be accountable uh, for for funding and training the yeah the, the, those police. Yeah, right. And are we just talking regular kind of um, on the corner sort of police, or uh, kind of more high level paramilitary, or both? Yeah, both. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, so, yeah, probably more the paramilitary um, group because the the argument uh, for doing so um, by the Australian government is that they are um, training police to to deal with terrorism. Um, so it's a counter-terror measure. Um, especially like after the Bali bombing and and all of those, um, yeah, things that have happened in the past, they continue to like. And but just we we heard um, last week when Asian um, had a meeting with with this with the government um, in Sydney, the statement that came out of that were, uh, yeah, again, talking about security in the region and how, uh, yeah, Australia wanted to keep on supporting, um, yeah, the governments of Southeast Asia to, um, yeah, support their police and military in uh, counter-terrorism activities, so... Hmm. Uh, that's kind of the the argument for why um, why Australia wants wants to <clears throat> train and continue to train and uh, and fund the police. Yeah. So I guess. But this... then uh, they they West Papua kind of gets left out of the picture completely and left out of the conversation. Yeah, yeah. I guess in Australia that's been a concern with the whole war on terror that some of these special laws and provisions would be used against activists and yeah in a limited way it kind of has happened whereas for west Papua, it's like it's a lot more real like actual paramilitaries have been like assassinating community organizers yep and can you tell us a bit about i was reading last night about um this thing called detachment 88 mm so that's the... uh, I'm not an I'm not an expert on on that, but um, yeah, that that's one of the groups that that is directly um, yeah involved around the the counterterrorism stuff, hmm. um, and yeah, they also then directly target uh, West Papuan um, groups freedom fighters and, uh, yeah, and activists. And um, that's one of the, yeah, one of the groups, I guess, that uh, we'll be talking about uh, during the speaking tour because it's, uh, 
yeah, there are West Papuan um, human rights defenders that have evidence of, yeah, Detachment 88 um, perpetrating abuses against Indigenous Papuans. So, hmm. yeah, it's um, something that's also been going on for a long time and it's about time we... Uh, we spoke about it and uh, try to hold our leaders accountable uh, for, yeah, this taxpayers' money uh, that they're using to basically kill kill and uh, oppress West Papuans. So, mm. and I guess if the Australian government withdraws not just that funding and um, logistical support, but also its political support for these paramilitaries operating there, that, that's going to assist and, and hopefully buy a bit more space for West Papua and activists to be able to organise in a, in a somewhat less dangerous <clears throat> environment, yeah? Yeah, I, I think at this point um, that... West Papuans have been struggling for so long um, and, yeah, there is a lot of intimidation um, that happens, but also, yeah, the the struggle continues and uh, from what I hear uh, from people inside West Papua and from the diaspora, uh, yeah, the the movement is strong. So I I think yeah, it, it would help um, people to to maybe mobilise a bit. Um, but we can also see that like uh, in the last few years, people in signing the petition uh, that um, they took to the UN and also in uh, on certain uh, dates that are significant to the West Papuan people, uh, like December 1st um, and May 1st. Um, uh, people have been out in the streets. And, uh, yeah, so that that's also a good sign that they feel uh, that they, they can do that or they want to do that despite the intimidation and risks of arrest and abuse. So, yeah. No, I don't have any... Yeah. Um, and I guess another aspect of, of this whole picture too would be um, multinational corporations exploiting natural resources in West Papua. Um, I guess by Australia providing this logistical support for the occupation for paramilitaries that also facilitates wealth being taken out of West Papua that's, uh, and, and environmental destruction. Definitely, yeah. Um, palm oil uh, is one of those um, commodities that's really starting to, um, yeah, have a, have a big impact in West Papua. Um, and obviously the ongoing uh, issues around Freeport, which is the biggest gold mine in the world, uh, and yeah, that's just kind of 
um, changing a little bit uh, now because Indonesia has negotiated a new contract uh, with Freeport McMoran where they will have more control and more more of the fund uh, revenue raised from the mine. But, uh, yeah, that, there, there's been in uh, recent times a lot of um, not not uh, like conflict, um, you know, in terms of arms and stuff. Although there there are some uh, groups that have been trying to uh, escalate things a little bit uh, in the Highlands to show that they are protecting their homelands and. Uh, yeah, that they want the more control and uh, more more of the uh, the yeah the resources they want to control the um, and look after their homeland. Mm. Uh, but there's yeah definitely Freeport still a big issue mm. and. Uh, I don't think that's going to um, stop anytime soon. And, yeah, I mean, Freeport, as I said, it's been going on for a long time and continues to be an issue with the paramilitaries because uh, they protect the area around the mine from Indigenous uh, people and displace Indigenous groups mm. uh, yeah, in order to protect those interests. Um, and can you tell us a bit about? I know you you mentioned that you didn't want to um, uh, disclose the names of the speakers at these meetings that are coming up just yet because that's yeah. you know a bit sensitive. Uh, but can you tell us maybe a little bit about their their background or like you know the the type of what they're going to be talking about? Yeah, so they are both human rights defenders and they're both, uh, yeah, gone around Papua uh, and spoken to people who are directly affected by police brutality, for example, people who ha- whose children have been killed by the police, um, people who have been arrested and tortured um, and they're both doing work uh, with yeah inside West Papua about that so um, and they're both long-term activists um, and human rights defenders so they uh, yeah it'll be really great for them to come and give first-hand experience um, and talk about these things, uh, yeah, and also we will be um, doing some uh, filming and speaking with, uh, so having some documentary evidence from West Papua that we will use as well um, because it's actually um, too dangerous at this point for uh, witnesses and people who are actually directly affected by um, the police brutality. It's too dangerous for them to 
uh, yeah, come over and um, and speak because mm. then they will have fear of reprisals and fear of uh, yeah returning home to West Papua. Um, yeah, so these people are, are going to come and and speak kind of on their behalf and. Um, yeah, really try to also have some opportunities for them to directly uh, ask questions of MPs um, and people who are responsible for the decision making that, uh, yeah, making the decision of continuing to fund and support the Indonesian police. Hmm. All right, and when uh, when's the Melbourne or, or when are the speaking dates, and in particular the Melbourne? Uh, when's the Melbourne meeting? Yeah, so they are in May, and we'll be going um, to Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, and Canberra. And uh, the May dates are between May twentieth and May twenty fifth, and there'll be several activities that will happen during that time. Um, we're still just uh, locking those in. But, yeah, we'll definitely, uh, as soon as we know what's happening, we'll start uh, letting people know. Yeah, Brad. All right. Well, um, yeah, thanks heaps for talking to us. And we might get you on again a bit closer to when that tour is actually happening so you can give us a bit of an update. And um, No worries. Yeah. Thank you. Wicked. All right. Take it easy. Um, yes, Rebecca Langley there, uh, who's organising the West Papua speaking tour. Uh, it's coming up in May. Uh, okay, well, we are going to wrap it up because Beyond Zero Emissions, the crew is, is gathering outside the studio as they do each week. And yeah, they're going to get in here and tell you about uh, the latest with renewables here and around the world. So thanks again for listening. And join us again next Friday morning for Green Left Radio. You're on 3CR. Keep it real. Keep it staunch. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. What better place than here? What better time?